Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar & Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. The rising costs of litigation and increased pressure to control legal budgets has made alternative dispute resolution a desirable way to resolve legal disputes. Mediation and arbitration are two well-known ADR methods, but they're not necessarily more cost-effective because they are still, by their very nature, adversarial. Can parties possibly resolve their disputes without tearing each other down and instead work to preserve a good working relationship? Well, the method of collaborative law attempts to help parties resolve disputes in exactly that fashion. And to discuss this concept, I'm pleased to welcome Glenn Meyer to the show. He's a business lawyer in Greenberg Traurig's Las Vegas office who leverages decades of experience negotiating and litigating commercial disputes to help clients build sustainable, collaborative relationships with their stakeholders. Glenn possesses deep experience in the emerging fields of relational contracting and collaborative law, which provides him a rare perspective in advising clients who want to create win-win relationships in their business affairs. Whether it's helping clients create the contracts that form those relationships or helping them seek resolution of disagreements without litigation, he's uniquely positioned to serve stakeholder-oriented companies. Glenn, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Dave. I really appreciate uh, that introduction. Sure. So let's start from the very basics. Um, what is collaborative law? Sure. So you've you've already kind of started down the road, which is that collaborative law is a uh, recognized alternative dispute resolution process. It started in kind of around the mid '90s, and the the founders of the process were a group of family lawyers in uh, the Minneapolis area led by a gentleman named Stu Webb. And essentially, they got together and said, you know, we have a problem, which is that the process that we are using to help families transition from, you know, pre-divorce to post-divorce is really, really hard on the families. And, you know, anybody like us who's litigated for a long time knows that litigation is hard on relationships. And so their solution was, well, let's let's kind of reimagine the divorce process. And instead of parties working against each other to compete either for the marital assets or for, you know, who gets to spend what time with the children, why don't we create a situation where we have um, everybody on one team that is working together to really kind of design what this family's life is going to look like after the divorce is complete. And so that's really how it got its start. Got it. And can this process be used or has it been used outside of the family law divorce context? Yeah. And that, so that's really the next step in the evolution of collaborative law. Uh, and that really brings us down into Texas and the Dallas Fort Worth area, where there were a number of lawyers who found out what 
Stu Webb and his colleagues were up to in Minneapolis, and particularly a woman named Sherry Abney down there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, really saw the application of this to business clients. She had done a lot of small business litigation and said, hey, this this seems to be a good process for these kind of cases. She started doing it. I like to tell the story of what I consider my first collaborative law case because I think it's a good application of how it works in business. And I like to say that I you know, did my first collaborative law case about 10 years before I even knew what collaborative law was. What happened was it was 2000, 2001. I had a client who was a uh, small multifamily home developer in the Las Vegas Valley. At that time, Las Vegas was several years into a wave of construction defect litigation. Pretty much every multifamily condominium complex in town either had been or eventually was going to be the subject of a lawsuit. And it was really troubling to this this one particular client I had, not from a point of view of, oh, this is money or reputational damage that that we're worried about, but really more in the terms of the the founder of that company had a high value on the relationship he had with the people who bought homes from his company. And so one of the things they had always done was they had always been really active uh, working with the associations in these condo complexes about, hey, let us know if you're having any problems with your buildings. You know, we want to come in, make sure you got a good product, get in there and fix it. And so because they had these relationships, there, there came a time where the members of the board of one of the associations for a community that they built came to them and said, hey, you know, we've had some inquiry from some lawyers about potential construction defects. We are having people who are having problems. We're concerned. We need to make sure that we're the board members need to make sure that we're fulfilling our fiduciary duties. And is there some other option we have other than following what uh, what these other lawyers are telling us that we need to file a lawsuit? And so my client came to me and asked the same question. Is there some other option? And at the time, I, my role in working with this client was on the insurance coverage side. I would basically yell at their insurance companies and make sure that they paid for the legal defense and, and the settlements of any of these lawsuits. And so I went to one of the lawyers that the insurance company regularly hired as defense counsel we talked, we said, look, you know, these cases have become fairly cookie cutter. Uh, you know, we, we can sort of see the range of what's going to happen. What if we just brought people in to inspect the complex, identify needed repairs, kind of using the criteria that were common in the litigation at the time, and just did it? And we knew that we were going to need a source of money. And so we went to the insurance carrier and particularly one adjuster with the insurance carrier and said, hey, this is our idea. This is what we want to do. And, you know, in what was kind of a surprising move, the insurance company said yes. So we went to the board. We said, look, we will uh, enter into a tolling agreement. We'll make sure that everybody's legal rights are preserved. That was like step number one. And then... We, again, without having 
any of the guides of being trained in collaborative law, we just started to collaborate. So we put together a team of construction professionals that could come in and give an objective look at this complex and say, yeah, there are some things that need to be done. And we did those inspections and we did identify repairs that needed to be made. And then this was the other part that was really significant was the insurance company agreed to go ahead and cover the cost of those repairs before they had resolved any issues between the general contractor and the subcontractors. So, you know, essentially the insurance company agreed to pay the claim and and chase the subs, which was very different from the usual approach at that time. And then, you know, we got things worked out. We actually included some uh, payment to the board so they could pay the plaintiff's lawyers for uh, the time that the plaintiff's lawyers had been advising them. I'm sure it wasn't the the size of, of payout that they would get in a fully litigated case, but it was also a lot less work for them. And then, you know, we conducted the repairs and we entered a settlement agreement and that was the end of the case. So, like I said, even though that wasn't a formal, what the law refers to as a formal collaborative legal proceeding, we essentially were following the process. And I think it was a good example of the kind of business case where collaborative can be helpful. Because number one, you had people who had a relationship that they valued. My client valued the relationship with the customers. The customers obviously valued the relationship they had with the person who had built their home because it was essentially the same as their relationship with their home. And then we figured out how to serve those relationships and make sure that everybody won. And it was probably one of the most uh, creative experiences I've had in practicing law. So that's a, a... probably maybe too long a story about how the process can work, but I thought it would be good to kind of talk about it in a, a real-world context. Yeah, that's that's that story. So you talked about having a valued relationship, and that's part of the collaborative law process. The other part was, you know, people who are willing to actually resolve things because, I mean, litigation all the time deals with relationships that were once valued and are no longer valued. And, you know, you see, especially, you know, small businesses or family disputes, either in a trust context or in a domestic relations context, where those relationships go awry and all they want to do is fight with one another because of, you know, emotions or because of things that have gone on in the past. So how do you get people uh, to the point where they actually want to resolve things collaboratively rather than going through the kind of the, the litigation process because they have these strong emotions. So the, the key here, and this gets into one of the key differences between an adversarial process and a collaborative process, is the adversarial process is very rights focused. What are you entitled to? Collaborative processes are more focused on interest. What's in your best interest? By the way, I find this uh, a helpful thing to do with clients who are in litigation as well, but is to uh, kind of meet the emotion that they're having. And that's a natural thing and acknowledge it. Don't try and pretend it doesn't exist. 
but then also start to ask them about the interests that are driving the emotion. Of course, that's not a, a, you know, you don't sit there and say, so tell me what your interests are. You have to be a little more kind of curious and digging around what's going on with them. But once you start hearing what their interests are, then you can start to see, okay, is this a case that is suitable for collaborative? And then you can start introducing them to the idea of, you know, sort of what's more important to you, going after somebody that has, you know, you've had a damaged relationship with and fighting them or um, getting to a solution. And if you have people who are more attracted to a solution rather than kind of the process of fighting, then those are really good candidates for collaborative proceedings. And it seems like that's a real difference between some of the other ADR methods like mediation, arbitration, as opposed to collaborative law is that adversarial process that remains with mediation and arbitration. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, arbitration is is explicitly adversarial. I think mediation, you know, I when I first started private practice, which was a long time ago, mediation was just becoming more and more popular in civil litigated cases. I think initially it was kind of promoted as a non-adversarial process. I would call it a a, a process that allows you to be non-adversarial if you want, but still a lot of times it ends up being adversarial. You know, I'm sure you've been in the kinds of mediations that I'm talking about. Sure. Absolutely. And so you talked about the one one case that kind of got you started in the collaborative law method, even though it wasn't kind of formally in that process. What are the ways that kind of drew you to um, taking a more formalized approach to collaborative law? Yeah. So, I mean, I had always, especially as I moved into working more and more with with business clients, I had always recognized that they had an interest in being as efficient as possible with the resolutions. And, you know, after you've litigated for a few years, you start to have a, a sense about cases. And you start to understand, hey, this case could probably resolve somewhere in this range. And for whatever reason, I was able to have a pretty fine-tuned sense of that pretty early on. And so, you know, clients want efficiency. You can see what a good resolution is early on. You put those two things together. That kind of pushes you more in a collaborative direction. But I think the thing that really, you know, finally pushed me into a point where, no, this is something I need to focus on is about eight or nine years ago, I got involved with a, a business group that is part of a movement that uh, has been come to be known as uh, stakeholder capitalism. And one of the ideas of stakeholder capitalism or this particular group is called conscious capitalism is that with all of the people that impact your business and that your business impacts, you should look to have a win-win relationship with them. So instead of the purpose of a business being just to uh, generate return for its shareholders, 
it has a, a larger purpose to have a positive impact on all of its stakeholders. So this would be not just shareholders. Shareholders are stakeholders, but also customers, employees, suppliers, their community, and most of the the organizations that talk about this thing also say that the the climate, the planet is a stakeholder too. So how are you working in your business to have positive impacts in all of those areas? And so kind of, and I remember when I, when I first read this book called Conscious Capitalism, and there's a whole section about what they call stakeholder relations and the importance of win-win stakeholder relations. And I got to the end of that book and I said, okay, first of all, these are, you know, it's not like these businesses can opt out of the legal system completely. I mean, if you're a business in the United States, you're going to be involved with the legal system. So what kind of legal tools were going to work for these people? Because, you know, I've done a lot of litigation. I know you've done a lot of litigation. I don't think any of us would sit there and say, yeah, litigation is a good tool for building and, and maintaining win-win relationships. So, you know, I, I, I saw this, this community that really kind of resonated with me and, and made sense to me. Yeah, I think this is how business should have the space to work in this way if people can. And that they were going to need some kind of different approaches to the relationship parts of the legal system. Really, you know, how do you create those business relationships and how do you maintain them when stuff happens? Got it. And we've talked a lot about kind of the philosophy around collaborative law. Um, Want to talk to you a little bit about the kind of nuts and bolts of it. Are there laws that kind of govern this process how is it more formalized within the law? There is a uniform act that covers collaborative law, very creatively named the Uniform Collaborative Law Act. And uh, that has been adopted in, I believe, 22 states, the District of Columbia, and is currently under consideration in two more states. So we're getting really close to adoption of the UCLA in about half of uh, the states in the country. Uh, I'm proud to say that Nevada was the third state in the country to uh, enact the Uniform Collaborative Law Act. So we have collaborative law uh, as a statutorily recognized approach here in Nevada. I do have colleagues who practice collaborative law in states where the UCLA has not been adopted. For example, California has not adopted this act, but there are still people practicing collaborative law there. And in those situations, essentially what you do is you kind of on a case-by-case basis create the statute by private agreement. Okay, here's how we are going to uh, resolve this dispute. Got it. So, Tell us how the process of collaborative law starts. So once you identify a case and parties that you think could resolve their dispute through this process, how, how would you approach a client? How do you get the process started? Sure. And it's really important. This is actually part of the act is that the process starts 
with what we like to call a suitability assessment, which is really just, is the case right for collaborative law and are the people right for collaborative law? Uh, And when I say the people, I'm talking not just about the clients, but also about the lawyers, because once you have completed that suitability assessment and evaluated that this is an appropriate case to use collaborative in, the next step in the process and really the formal commencement of the process is that what's called a participation agreement is signed. And uh, a participation agreement, it's something, again, that's provided for in the statute. It has some required elements. You have to identify the dispute. It has to be you know, recorded somehow, either in writing or digitally. Uh, it has to be signed. And it has to identify the lawyers who are representing each party collaboratively. There's a couple of reasons why that is important. One is that the lawyers themselves are signatories to the participation agreement. It is not just the clients. And one of the reasons why the lawyers sign the participation agreement is because of another feature of the statute, which is a disqualification provision. And to let you know how that works, Parties say, yes, we're going to have a collaborative proceeding. We're going to work together to resolve these issues. The lawyers are part of it. And sometimes, not as often as you might think, but sometimes the process fails and it goes back into litigation. So by statute, in a state that has adopted the Uniform Collaborative Law Act, If what has been a collaborative matter later uh, falls out of the collaborative process and goes back into litigation, because collaborative is voluntary completely, so at any time, either side can decide that they're going to terminate the collaborative process. But if that happens, they're going to have to get new lawyers because the collaborative attorneys who signed the participation agreement are disqualified from working on the matter in any litigation capacity. And it is a situation where imputed disqualification applies. So it's not like, you know, in my office, I couldn't have a collaborative case, be a party to a participation agreement, have the case break down. I'm disqualified all the litigators in my office can still work on the case. No, it works just like any other disqualification. If a lawyer in the firm is disqualified, you know, without any type of screening or uh, other sort of exception, then the whole firm is disqualified. So that's, that's a big feature of collaborative law. And I will tell you that when I go out and I talk to business people about collaborative law, that's a a part of the process that really resonates with the business people. I've asked them why, and it's that they feel like, well, now, you know, my lawyer really has skin in the game. Yeah, it's interesting. And I was thinking, you know, we have an ethical obligation to be zealous advocates. And I wonder, I bet you get a lot of pushback from lawyers who, from the opposite point of view, from their from what you just mentioned with with the clients that say, well, 
if I have an ethical obligation to be a zealous advocate, how do I, you know, work in this collaborative process? And, and what what is your response to that? Yeah. So my response to that is I'm absolutely a zealous advocate, but I'm advocating for different, not for different things, but from a different perspective than somebody who is zealously advocating in the litigation context. Because the rules of the game are different, all right? For me to win in a collaborative process, everybody has to win. So now my client's interests that I'm zealously advocating for have expanded. My client has actually legally recognized that they care not just about their own interests, but also about the interests of their counterparts. So that's that's my philosophical response to that. Um, and my kind of more business response to that is, you know, ask people who run companies on a day-to-day basis how big of an asset their relationships are. And, you know, we talked about the impact of litigation on relationships already. I think we have to understand when we're doing business litigation that there's potentially an asset there that our client may have an interest in preserving. And if they do, then, you know, I believe there's room inside of zealous advocacy for um, for a, a win-win approach. Sure. And that's where the participation agreement and, and the uniform laws kind of come into play, I think, kind of giving cover to attorneys who practice in this area. So let's let's go to the next part of the process. So you've signed the participation agreement. What happens next in the process? Yeah. And so there there are some, you know, very standard stages of the process that you go through. But I'm really excited that we got to this question because it finally lets me give the ultimate lawyer's answer, which is it depends. (laughs) What happens next in the process depends on the needs of that case. But the general stages that you're going to go through are, number one, you're going to make sure you've formed your team. So your team is at least going to include all the interested participants and collaborative lawyers for each of them. Now, you may want other people on your team. You may have uh, financial or other subject matter expertise issues you need to work through. So you want to bring an expert in, a lot like you do in litigation, except then now it's not one side bringing in one expert and another side bringing in a different expert. It's both of them identifying an expert that works for everybody. Because collaborative law recognizes uh, the the emotional dynamics that can be going on in litigation, and because collaborative law also recognizes that lawyers aren't therapists, it is not unusual to have some kind of mental health professional or conflict coach or something like that, basically somebody who can help people work through whatever their issues are that aren't really served by legal advice. You know what I'm saying? And then another uh, thing that I think is is really useful, and, and this is actually one of the areas I 
this is one of the roles I enjoy serving most in a collaborative process is that as cases get more complicated and maybe the solution that you're going to implement is going to take more time or involve more people or involve more steps, it can uh, be helpful to have somebody who's sort of conducting the orchestra and whose job really is just to focus on process and make sure that things are running as smoothly as the process will allow, uh, really a facilitator. And so that's another role that you might want to fill on a team. So that's stage number one, create a team. Stage number two, gather information. Before parties can make an informed decision about how to resolve their issues, they need to have all the relevant information. And indeed, the exchange of information is something that's specifically provided for in the collaborative law statute. And it's uh, specifically calls for a free and transparent exchange of information. So you create your team, you get all the necessary information. Uh, next step is you need to identify what the individual party's interests are, and then also what sort of their shared interests are and how to put all those together. And then once you do that, you're going to, you know, come up with options, make a decision on what option serves the people's interests, and then you're going to finalize the case. And an interesting thing about collaborative law is uh, most collaborative proceedings get, at least in the non-family context, most collaborative proceedings can be resolved simply through a signed settlement agreement. Uh, however, if you do need some sort of order entered, so go back to the roots of collaborative law and think about the family law context, you know, somebody needs to enter a court order that says this couple is now divorced and specifies what the agreements are around the children and the marital assets. So I appreciate in collaborative law that if you need an order entered or a judgment entered, you can do that. And, and if you don't need it, and if you can just resolve it through settlement agreement, you can do that. But if you think about those stages that I talked about, they really match up well with stages of litigation. You, you know, frame the issues in the participation agreement or pleadings. You gather information either through sharing it or through discovery. You, you know, look at the different options for how the case can resolve and then a decision gets made, except instead of each side arguing for the decision they want and having somebody else make it, it's a decision that's made together. So similar processes in a lot of ways, but that framework makes all the difference. Got it. And you talked about kind of building the team. Who pays for that team? Because, you know, often there's different levels of income on each side. And that's true, whether you're talking about a, a business versus an individual or even business versus business disputes. So how do you determine who's going to pay for what when you're building, um, you know, this, this team that you're, um, that you need for this process? Right. So the, the default position is going to be uh, that the costs are split, but again, uh, and I've, I've heard about this kind of uh, arrangement a lot from, the people that I know that are, are family law collaborative lawyers, you know, maybe you have 
people who have different levels of assets available to pay for experts. So collaborative gives you the freedom to say, okay, the the standard approach may be that we share the cost, but in this case, we're going to have, you know, one side pay 75%, another side pay 25%, or, you know, whatever whatever works for that situation. Got it. And then what about confidentiality of the process? You know, one of the nice things about, you know, mediation typically is that all the all of the facts, uh, I guess, all of the positions disclosed in the mediation are are confidential. Is it similarly true when you go through this collaborative law process? Yes, it is, and that's another feature of the statute that provides that you know the the term of art that's actually defined elsewhere in the statute is a collaborative law communication. But you know that's broad enough to cover all of the communication, all of the sharing of information that goes back and forth. And it is protected similar to uh, how mediation information is protected. Well, you know, we're coming to the end of our time together, and I think you've given us a lot of uh, food for thought, especially for folks like me who hadn't heard of uh, collaborative law before kind of starting um, in on this interview. So if folks wanted to learn more about collaborative law, uh, where, where, where would we go to find out more? Sure. So there's a couple of uh, organizations I'm going to point you to. One is called the IACP, which I believe stands for International Association of Collaborative Professionals. That's the largest uh, collaborative law supporting group in the world. They meet once a year and, you know, have a sort of a typical conference, and then they have other activities that go on throughout the year. I will say that from my perspective, the majority of their focus is in the family arena. I'm much more focused in what we call civil collaborative law, which is basically any application outside of the family uh, arena. And particularly for me, I'm most interested in the business disputes. So there's another organization that has a narrower focus than IACP, and that's called the Global Collaborative Law Council. And I want to let folks know and, and kind of give an advance notice uh, that the GCLC, this other organization that's focused specifically on civil collaborative, that we are just in the process of finalizing the dates and location for our 2023 conference. So uh, it's going to be probably in the middle of the year. We're looking to go someplace we haven't been before. And so if you check out uh, the GCLC website and keep track of that, you'll find out about when we're going to gather for a few days and do some advanced training on collaborative law. The last thing I'd say is, you know, if you're interested in this stuff, uh, I write about it regularly on LinkedIn. You can contact me through uh, there and connect with me through there. Uh, You can also uh, find me through the GT website. And uh, my bio talks a little bit more about what I do. I'm always happy to talk to anybody who uh, thinks that they may know some folks who need this different alternative. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for, as I said, giving us a lot of food for thought, a lot of interesting information, because I think a lot of a lot of times we have clients who we don't think it, it makes sense to go through the litigation process, but and this gives a another alternative for folks to resolve their disputes. So Glenn Meyer, thank you so much for being on the show today. 
thank you for having me, Dave. And I, I actually, you, I'm sorry, but you said something there that just makes me want to throw one other little nugget out there for us, which sure. is that the the process of of litigation, right? You're supposed to decide who's at fault. I, in my experience, a lot of lawsuits start over what I call kind of business happens things. You were a real estate developer who started a new project right at the beginning of the uh, Great Recession, or you launched a new restaurant right as a worldwide pandemic started. Sometimes bad things happen to people in business because business happens. And especially in situations like that, where maybe it's not as important to know whose fault it is, I think those kinds of cases can be especially well-suited to collaborative proceedings. So I just wanted to throw that in, too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you so much again for being on the show. Thank you, Dave. Now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. So let's welcome back Daryl Wilson to the show. Daryl is Assistant General Counsel in the Litigation Center of Excellence at Honeywell International Incorporated. Great to hear from you again, Daryl. Hey, Dave. Glad to be back here. All right. Well, let's talk about tips for litigators to avoid burnout. Absolutely. We've now entered into the new year, and we always want to focus on setting new goals for the year. So with that, I want to talk about tips for avoiding burnout and remaining resilient in your uh, current roles or new roles that you may look to achieve within this next year. Um, So the main cause for burnout that I've found to be is really related to stress. It may be stressful situations that can cause you to, you know, think and act differently. So stress may be the cause of you being exhausted, uh, you potentially losing enthusiasm on your job, or also having that low efficiency rating at work. And so some things that you may want to look out for that may give you some signs of burnout is uh, procrastination, uh, drop in productivity, maybe some mood changes or an inability to concentrate some detachment from your job and maybe even some of your peers, but then also ultimately having job dissatisfaction. So when we couple all that together, I want to give us some tips on how to avoid uh, that burnout. And those tips will be one, you know, early recognition of burnout and what it may look like. Uh, Your next one is that you may want to complete a periodic assessment to realign yourself or realign your goals. And then we want to talk about, you know, maybe some physical activities that may help you uh, remain resilient on the job, but also avoiding that burnout. And then also we want to talk about avoiding substance abuse and then also the potential of seeking therapy or some type of assistance. So now circling back to the first tip is really that you want to recognize what that burnout looks like. So as we mentioned, you know, burnout may look like procrastination, the drop in productivity, the mood changes, the inability to concentrate, some detachment, and then the job dissatisfaction. So Ways to uh, recognize the burnout early is you may want to ask yourself, do you feel differently on a certain day as you prepare for work? And, you know, Monday, it may be your Sunday, you're going into Monday and you may just feel different about not going into work uh, that day. So those are things that may want to cause your attention to start focusing on, you know, what is that work environment looking like? Um, Are you tired? Do you find yourself to be tired throughout the day when you're working? And so that may lead to that uh, procrastination or productivity. 
productivity drop? Or are you unmotivated to just do the work? Um, so if these are things that you may wake up and you feel different, you're tired or unmotivated, so you want to recognize those and you want to look for ways to perform a shift in your daily pattern. And that takes us to our next tip is that you may want to complete a periodic assessment to realign yourself. You have to physically do this. I don't believe in, you know, oh, let me do my assessment in my head, you know, give my thought, because that's going to make your mind continue to race even more. So you want to have it written down so that you can kind of look at it and focus in and key in on it, as opposed to trying to remember all those things in your head, because you already got a lot going on at work. So you want to be able to reassess where you are. And I just say, you know, take the time, set some time aside, whether that be, you know, 30 minutes or an hour as you prepare for your work day. So just really align yourself with what it is that you want to get from your job and what tasks you may have to do. Looking at, you know, the priority of particular tasks, you may want to realign those to say, okay, this task I thought was important, but there's another task that may be more important. So we want to focus on that uh, as we prepare to go into this new realignment period. You want to write out your goals. Um, I believe that you have to write your goals down in order to make them effective and to order to make them achievable. But you also want to put a time stamp on that a goal. You want to look at the goal and say, I want to do X, Y, Z by ABC date. And when you do that, you're then setting yourself into a pattern that will keep you enthused about your particular goals and that will allow you to perform well. So I say you make personal goals, but also make work related goals so that you can stay enthused about the work that you do. Your next thing that you want to do is you want to get physical. You want to get some exercise in. So that's very key um, to remaining resilient in your job and in your workforce. It's just that your, your mind is refocused every day as you exercise. Uh, you want to get an appropriate diet in. Um, so, you know, that's keying in those different fruits, vegetables, certain proteins that may get your mind set in a new path. Um you want to make sure that you get those in. But most importantly, you want to make sure that you get some sleep. Sleep is very important. I know in our jobs that we may, you know, pull all nighters or we or we may work longer hours, but we want to make sure that we're setting aside that time for sleep because sleep is very important in order to refresh you and rejuvenate you for the next day that is to come. So I think if you couple all three of those together, which is, you know, exercise, a diet and uh, healthy sleep, you know, they say you should get seven to eight hours of sleep a night. It will rejuvenate you and keep you going and motivated to perform your task at work. And next, you know, in this profession, it can be very stressful. And some people may turn to substance abuse or different substances to keep them, you know, motivated or going. I would encourage you, you know, to not lean heavily on different substances that may be, um, you know, bad for your body or bad for your health. Uh, so in those instances, I would always advise that, you know, seek therapy if it, if it gives you something to talk about that may be different. You know, have an outlet. Uh, but then there's also assistance for you. You know, for, look at your different bar associations or maybe even your employer may provide assistance if you see yourself leading down a path that results to, to substance abuse. Another thing that I want to talk about and as we get ready to round out is that. In order to avoid burnout, you also have to have, you know, empathetic leaders. So this is a tip that's more so for like partners or your superiors, supervisors, or maybe even organization wide is that you want to encourage empathetic leadership. So you want to be understanding with your employees if they may come to you and say that they're experiencing burnout. Be understanding and, and, you know, talk with them and let them know that you are here for them uh, during this time. And you may want to encourage them to take some time off uh, if they have the capacity to ensure that their work is getting done or maybe some realignment of work assignments uh, to ensure that your employees are not, you know, burning out, which may potentially 
hurt your retention uh, at your uh, organization. And then you just want to offer up support, tell them that you're there, but then also have them to focus maybe on their business resource groups or your employee resource groups uh, so that they have that support. And lastly, as we go out, I want to encourage everyone to, you know, look at your support systems to talk about potential burnout at work. I tell people to have a personal board of directors so that you have people to go to that can discuss these things with you and help you to avoid that burnout. And then also you want to just develop resiliency. This is, you know, the opportunity to grow and thrive in the face of challenges or adversity. And and if you set up that resiliency, it'll keep you far, far, far away from that burnout. So I'll leave you with these tips here, and I hope you have a great year and avoid the burnout. Well, terrific, Daryl. Thanks for sharing those practical tips, and thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have questions or a comment you'd like for me to talk about in an upcoming show, you can email me at dscrivenyoung, without the hyphen, at gmail.com, and connect with me on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting in person at one of our litigation section events, so please make plans to join us at the Insurance Coverage Litigation Committee CLE Seminar in Tucson, March 1st through the 4th. At this seminar, you'll learn about the very latest developments in insurance law from leading lawyers and insurance professionals. This year's meeting will feature the same high-quality programming that has attracted insurance practitioners from all over the United States and other parts of the globe for over 30 years. To find out more and for registration information, go to ambar.org slash litigationinsurance. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating over at Spotify Podcasts is incredibly helpful as well. And finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make this show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thank you, Rich, for all of your hard work. Thanks also goes out to the, my fellow co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. <laughs>